Hello and welcome to this podcast covering treatment sequencing in advanced metastatic colorectal cancer patients in the third line and beyond. This podcast is an initiative of Corte-Ab and developed by GI Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of oncology. The podcast is supported by an independent educational brand from Bayer. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. I'm Jenny Seligman, and I'm a professor of GI medical oncology based in the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on this GI Connect podcast by Shubham Pant. Welcome. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Thank you so much, Jenny, for the kind introduction. My name is Shubham Pant. I'm a professor of GI medical oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Great to be on this podcast with you. I'm delighted that you can join us. So I'm really excited about this podcast for a number of reasons. I think it's very timely to be having this discussion. So our focus is shifting to treatments for metastatic colorectal cancer in the third line and beyond. And of course, we know that a smaller proportion of our patients make it to third line treatments. But still, this is a meaningful and impactful population of patients. So this topic deserves careful consideration, especially as there's been a number of developments in the past year in this treatment space. So Shivan, just to start off, tell me how you assess a patient ahead of third line treatments. What, what are the things that you think about? You know, third line is a very interesting space in colorectal cancer now. A lot of newer therapeutics are coming in. So the way I look at it is the first of all, look at the KRAS mutational status, right? That we have probably done at the beginning when the patient was diagnosed, that's when we do it. But if they were KRAS wild type and they had an anti-EGFR therapy, then I would potentially do a ctDNA testing to see if we could uh, re-challenge them with an anti-EGFR agent. Uh, would also obviously look at the genomic profile, which was done, maybe a somatic mutation. That means mutation on the tumor for our listeners to see if there were any other targetable mutations that they could go on or any other clinical trials we could find for these patients in the third line space. So that's when I look at it overall, look at the standard of care options that we're going to talk about. I look at clinical trials and then I look at any genomically targeted therapeutics that we can put these patients on. That's really interesting. And that then frames our future discussions here really nicely. Some things I think about in the third line are, are, I suppose, a bit more clinical. So the fitness of the patient. I mean, you're meeting a, a different patient than you are in the first line. They could have had years of chemotherapy before the third line. On the other hand, you may have a patient who has progressed very quickly through first and second line treatment. And I think it's quite important to think about those things. Likewise, their toxicity, how have they found previous treatment, both physically and psychologically? And do they have any ongoing toxicity? Some patients will have ongoing toxicity from their, their first line or their second line, even um, things like skin toxicity that may influence decisions. So I suppose it's a, it's a bit of a combination of both, I would imagine. And I'm thinking along those lines, how do you think treatment goals differ say, from the first line to the third line? Do you see those being different? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Jenny. And thank you for bringing that up. I think they are very different. I think it's that time that we need to have, you know, not that we don't need to have it before, but we need to have a really serious conversation with the patient and their family about what their goals are, depending on exactly what you said about performance status. If they're poor performance status, you know, we really have to know what they want to do with their life. Do they want to spend time coming into the hospital and to see us? Uh, do they want to have time spending at home? And I think it's very important to have that quality of life discussion with the patients about what their values are and what they want. Because as you know, every patient is different. Some patients come to us, say, we just want to continue and we that's what we want to do. And some patients say, you know what, I think I've had enough. I want to maybe just uh, spend time with my family. So I think you're right. It's very important to have that discussion about what the patient really wants to do at this this time. Because whatever options we have, they're limited, unfortunately, at this stage, even with, with the therapeutics that we have now. So I think that's very important. Yeah. And, and I think the other important thing is for the patients who do want to pursue third line options, I think we need to be realistic. I mean, we're going to discuss the data, but we have to be realistic about where they are in the, in the treatment pathway and think about other elements such as integrated palliative care and Actually, some of the trials we'll talk about have very nicely integrated that within their trial design. So one more question just to push you before we talk about some of the options in the data. When you're looking at all of the if the trials in the third line and beyond, what do you think is the most meaningful clinical endpoint? Thank you for the easy question, Jenny. <laughs> I think clinical meaningful endpoint, uh, you know, it also it's. It's beauties in the eyes of the beholder, you know, as they say. So the clinical endpoints, you know, for some patients, it's like, what's my survival? How long did this give overall survival to our patients? Some patients say, hey, what are the side effects? You know, how did they feel like when they were on it? Were they getting admitted? Were they not getting admitted? Like, how did patients feel on it? So it's really, for me, and I'm sure for a number of our listeners, it's more... Uh, you know, patient driven, we give them the options and they see what they want to pursue. But it just depends on a lot of on patient factors, as we discussed. Well, I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. But again, I think things like response rate have a lesser place than, as you say, overall survival and quality of life do. So going back to your first point about mutation status and that being one of the main things that may drive decisions. Just out of interest, if a patient was coming to see you routinely, in this setting, would you be rebiopsying or doing ctDNA? And, and I'll start out by taking the pressure off always asking you the questions by saying, in my own practice, we wouldn't routinely at the moment do that. So we wouldn't have access to ctDNA as standard. And most patients are not interested in being rebiopsied. And for quite a lot of our treatments, it probably wouldn't change the management anyway. But of course, that's in Europe. What would be your standard at MD Anderson? Yeah, so normally not a re-biopsy unless we're doing it for some kind of clinical trial specifically. Mostly it would be ctDNA because we would have had a you know, whole next-gen sequencing panel early in the patient's journey. So you know, I concur with you there that we would not, you know, we would not regularly, unless it was in the context of a clinical trial, just re-biopsy them. It wouldn't be the norm. I wonder if it'd be good to just start with the approved and available agents for third-line metastatic colorectal cancer. So these would obviously be TAS-102 and regorafenib. So one question that's always unclear to me is if you're going to use these agents, 
in a molecularly unselected population, which one would you choose first and, and what kind of things come into your decision making process? And I want to ask that question to you, back to you, Jenny, after this. But uh, <laughs> but I look at the side effect, the toxicity profile. I think they're a little different. I think you know, rigorafenib, but being a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, just has more toxicities like more fatigue and uh, diarrhea and others. I think the redose strategy about starting low and going a little bit higher is what we do. Kind of start at the lower end and then escalating the doses, see how they're tolerated. And I've seen patients do differently. Different patients do differently on that. Whether the task one or two, obviously more heme toxicity. So just, you know, look at, you know, how their marrow is doing and everything, what their counts are. That would be one of the considerations. And uh, because they're fairly, the data is fairly similar, you know, in a way you can't cross compare. So the data is fairly similar. So I kind of look at the, you know, again, like you said, any lingering toxicities, you know, what it is and how we can overcome that. So I'll ask you, Jenny. So what do you guys do? Do you guys do redos? What do you do in across the pond? So across the pond, yeah, we do that. And I think that's been very helpful data in terms of tolerability. But again, even at the 160 dose, you often do have to go back down to 120. And that's okay for some patients. The decision of what to do first, I think, is more complex. I mean, we have some data for TAS 102 that patients who have previously progressed through first and second line chemotherapy are the ones who benefit less from TAS-102. And that's certainly something that I consider. On the other hand, we have some data suggesting that regorafenib may not be as helpful in KRAS mutant patients. But again, that's from, you know, small subgroup analyses. Yeah. And I think you have to be quite careful when you're considering that, particularly in this um, RAS mutant group who have limited treatment options anyway. And again, we'll come to that when we discuss molecularly targeted agents. For TAS-102, there seems to be less variation in outcome by molecular status. There is data as well that it's it shouldn't be a one or the other choice and, and that actually patients who have had both actually do well. So it's quite reasonable to give one and if a patient is still um, fit for treatment and would like to have more, it looks to be a reasonable thing to then use the other agent. So I'm glad that you find that as challenging as I do. And I agree with you. It's individual patient conversation. So moving on to some of the more recent data. So we've obviously got the, the sunlight data that was presented at GIASCO, which was looking at TAS-102 um, plus or minus bevacizumab. Of course, this isn't brand new data because there was a, a phase two trial in Denmark that showed promising data previously looking at TAS-102 plus bevacizumab. Of course, most of the patients were recruited in um, Europe and Asia um, mm -hmm. So I am very interested on the U.S. take in this. The sunlight trial was patients who received TAS-102 plus bevacizumab versus TAS-102. And they essentially received it in the third line setting. And the patients had to have had previous like regular therapies, platinum, iron or TCAN, uh, which when this was molecularly unselected patients. Interesting thing uh, that I thought was that about 76% had received treatment with a prior VEGF, 72%, you know, with prior bevacizumab. And, you know, we saw progression-free survival and overall, overall survival benefit. And they talked about a few quality of life parameters also. 
the interesting thing was when I looked at the subgroup analysis, even the patients who had received prior bevacizumab, they did uh, tend to get benefit in progression-free survival. That was a big question for me because I don't know how it's in, in England, but uh, you know, out here, majority of our patients, if they're eligible to get bevacizumab, would have received bevacizumab or an anti-IGF, essentially. So that was a critical point for me. There were like only 25% patients. And I was just wondering where they accrued these patients from. So maybe places where it was not available. It would be a rarity for our practice <laughs> to, for them not to have been exposed to an anti-VEGF. But I do think even in the presence of anti-VEGF, those data stood. I think it's a viable option for the patients. What about you, Jenny? Well, it's interesting you say that. So across Europe, I think that there's most countries, patients will have been exposed to bevacizumab before the third line, but not in all countries. And that includes the UK. And that's mainly based upon things like health economic thresholds for approvals. And actually, I think this is probably the most convincing data that's ever been shown with the addition of bevacizumab to a chemotherapy agent in terms of efficacy endpoints. But again, scientifically, I thought it was really interesting because it really um, provides proof of concept that bevacizumab is effective despite progression, which has always been mm-hmm. a, a bit unclear to me. So I agree with you. That was probably the most notable thing of the analysis. Would this then change the balance between regorafenib versus TAS-102 plus bevacizumab? For me, yes, it would. Again, the... As you said beforehand, there was not much to go between with regorafenib and TAS-102, whereas actually the addition of bevacizumab really made the data much stronger. So I think there is a meaningful difference, which would mean I would sequence the TAS-102 plus bevacizumab ahead of the regorafenib in this situation. Yeah, so I think if they've never had a VEGF, that's a slam dunk. As far as the patients who received prior VEGF, it's still coming back to the, you know, toxicities, you know, what they've received before. If they really, you know, have had the myelosuppression with the previous therapies and everything, I, I would still discuss with them, you know, options, especially, like I said, majority of our patients have had VEGF prior. So I think it kind of differs again. But yes, if they've never had prior VEGF, that's a no-brainer to add TAS-102 with bevacizumab on the sunlight trial. Great. So I suppose the other trial that has been of interest last year is Fresco 2, which was presented at ESMO, which was, of course, building on Fresco 1. So this is looking at fruquintinib. Any thoughts about this trial? I think that's more like a fourth line regimen. Essentially, the patients who came on had to have prioxaliplatin, ironotecan, anti-VEGF if they were eligible, anti-AGFR if they were eligible, also progression or intolerance on TAS-102 and regorafenib. So more of a fourth line, I think, regimen, though quite a few patients had received uh, at least one or both, essentially. And, you know, there was a you know median overall survival difference of 2.6 months. So I think that's definitely an area, but I think I would uh, slot it right now into more of my fourth line kind of option. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that approval will be sought, maybe fourth line and beyond yeah. because really that is where the the data is and I, I can't see a trial going entirely head to head between all three of these so I think we'll probably have more questions than answers in this space in the next few years but again it was showing that it was relatively tolerable and as you say associated with another overall survival gain despite this pre-treatment so 
Again, it's just pushing these patients out. We don't have a huge amount of information about subgroups. Maybe more data will follow in time. Shall we move on to um, molecularly targeted patients? We've got a couple of groups to consider. So we've got the KRAS, the RAS wild type patients. And then again, recent data from the Mountaineer trial from last year in HER2 positive patients. And even now in KRAS 12C patients as well. So again, the, this refractory setting is really very busy nowadays. So like we said, we're really in the third line. You have the options. Currently, you have TAS-102 rigorafenib. You obviously have the other options of looking at, you know, molecularly targeted agents. And one of the ones, uh, the trial, the Mountaineer trial that you mentioned was a combination of trastuzumab, we used it forever, with tucatinib, which was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for HER2. Main side effect, diarrhea. These patients in this Mountaineer trial had about three prior lines of therapy. So exactly what we are talking about, we're talking about two, but it's, you know, could be three and patients did have a response rate of about 38% with the duration of response. That means if they responded was about 12 months. So that's fairly, you know, significant, I think, for the patients. But I'm really excited that Hertunu has moved from breast cancer forever now to GI cancers. And it's really exciting to see it in gastric, to see it as a valid target in colorectal cancer. So super excited about the data. What are your thoughts about enteric fusion and really targeting that? in patients with colorectal cancer, super rare, like needle in haystacks. Needle in haystacks, but worthwhile looking for. When we were talking about response rates for NTRAC targeting agents in patients who have a fusion, at the top of my head, I think over half of patients had a response in the very refractory setting. And not only did they have a response, but they had durable benefit from it. So again, you're absolutely right. If you can find this alteration, then it's really important. So thinking about EGFR rechallenge, I mean, this seems like a, a really exciting area. Again, just using our comparator of, of say, TAS-102 or regorafenib. So we started out with data from the CRICKET trial. This is obviously quite old now. This is, I think, nearly 10 years old, which was looking at rechallenging patients who had previously had a response to anti-EGFR, who were obviously RAS wild type and then re-challenging them after a further line of treatment. And in an unselected patient, the response rate was approximately 20%. And then things have got more interesting and, and a bit more precise. Um, with the Kronos trial, which looked at trying to identify the patients who would most benefit from this approach by testing their ctDNA following progression on their second-line chemotherapy. And actually using this approach, it was even more successful. So patients that remained wild type on their ctDNA, their response rates were even higher. So again, this, this feels like a, a really obvious thing to do. Is this something you're doing in your routine practice? Yeah, we, we tend to do the ctDNA and we do think about an EGFR re-challenge. That's right, Jenny. So I think it's important that, you know, that these patients might get that mutation and that now they could be re-challenged if it's regained their wild type status. So I think it would be something that we would consider here, definitely. But Jenny, I know we've had a really interesting, wide, far-ranging discussion of both clinical practice and how practices differ or they're similar across uh, different continents. So maybe I'll give you the opportunity to summarize and give us some take-home messages. Sure. So yes, thank you. I've really enjoyed this discussion and I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it too. I think our main points is that you really need to assess patients in the third line quite carefully. 
we've talked about both patient and molecular factors that you should take into account when making treatment decisions. We've discussed the currently approved options and some of the decision-making processes that you may have when deciding which approach to take first. And we've talked about molecularly targeted options, which for some of our listeners will be things that they can do in the clinic tomorrow. And for some of our listeners, it will be things that we are hoping that we'll see in our own practice very soon. So I'll finish up there by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you to GI Connect for the podcast. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then there are plenty of others on wide reaching topics on the GI Connect website. So thank you for joining us. And I hope that you'll join another podcast soon. Thanks very much. We hope you found this podcast informative and enjoyable. If you like this episode, you should look on the Core to Add channel for more. Also, don't forget to rate this episode on the Core to Add website and share our podcast on social media or with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Core to Add Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2add.com for more information.